I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And today, we're, we're going to add a new sometimes, <laughs> sometimes thing. thing. What do we call that? A segment? A, a segment? A feature? I don't know. And well, we do. Well, we usually do the beginning of the show, and we... We have updates. We stuff. update but stuff. But today, we're a local crime A late-breaking story. story. Well, it's not really late-breaking, because it Especially it won't be by the time our, our podcast <laughs> <True>. airs. <laughs> and this is... A classic main crime. Happened this morning, right? No, yesterday morning. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it happened yesterday, which as we're recording, this was July 5th. It was a quadruple dead domestic violence shooting. Four dead seems to be like kind of... Yeah, kind of a thing. And, a it's, thing it's, and it's usually domestic violence. It's, it's not, almost always. It's always it's domestic vi- violence. Maine has like between 20 and 25 murders a year and almost... Half of them are more domestic violence. At least. The other ones are um, druggies or drink people, you're drinking never, buddies. Right. You're never in more danger in Maine, which is a very low crime state, than being in the house with the wrong person. Yeah. Here's what happened. Carol Tuttle, a man, shot his wife, his adult son, and a neighbor. He believed the wife and the neighbor were having an affair. The neighbor was a man. What they were really doing was the neighbor was just an empathetic guy. And since she lived with an abusive husband, he was trying to help her get out of the... He was trying to help her move out. And the hardest... Right. And the hardest, he was trying to help her. And as domestic violence experts always say, the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence is when they're moving out of the house. And the neighbor who got shot, the the uh, one that the husband... His name was Michael Spaulding. His girlfriend was there at yes. the time, and helping the husband, as well. I so. think in a lot of cases, domestic violence murderer, family murderers, have to believe, have to convince themselves they have a legitimate reason. And I'm glad the story in today's Morning Sentinel, which is the newspaper I used to work for, the newspaper that's covering this because it was in Madison, Maine, which is in the, if you know anything about Maine, the Skowhegan area. It's central Maine. Central yeah. Maine. I'm glad it didn't say he shot her because he thought they were having an affair. We had one a few years ago where it's the guy shot the woman because he saw a text from a guy that he thought she was... No, that's not why he shot. He shot her and the other people because he's a control freak with a gun who believes he has the right to kill someone. That's right. And so uses a crazy rationalization to justify his violent behavior. And the, and the sheriff, the sheriff's department shot him. Yeah. So that makes the... One of the things that bugs me the most, besides the actual thing and all the things that surround it, is the vapid quotes you get from people. Ugh. I can't believe something like this would happen here. What's this world coming to? Let me tell you something. I don't give a shit how I sound about this. I say it all the time. There are domestic violence murder is nothing new in Maine. It happens in small towns. Domestic violence happens in small towns. And as long as people keep thinking that they're living in some... Idyllic. Yeah, this idyllic... I almost said Nelson Rockefeller, but who did I... (laughs) (laughs) Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell (laughs) town... Where bad things just don't happen. Part of the one of my issues with that is as long as people and it's the thing I talk about a lot, this us and them, there's all the good people and then there's all the bad people. As long as people keep believing that quote unquote things like this don't happen in our town, it's gonna keep happening. And let me tell if these people have short fucking memories. In the summer of two thousand eleven, within ten days, 
uh, guy shot his wife in Winslow, which mm-hmm. is near enough for our purposes to Madison. Same yes. time. Yeah. Chased her down the street in front of their two kids and shot her. Then he was shot. He took off and was shot by the state police on the turnpike. Shortly after that, another guy shot his wife and two kids. He was in a custody battle with her and then shot himself. And that all happened within 10 days. And everybody was all up in arms and all going to do all this stuff about domestic violence. And I will say that Somerset County, where the Madison shooting took place, has done a lot of things. For instance, people who exhibit red flag behavior who have charges against them, they have them wear electronic bracelets. And a lot of things that just reach straining orders aren't going to take care of. But the problem is that there are a lot of red flag shit going on, and if the person doesn't get arrested for something else or if nobody presses charges for an assault or something, everybody just thinks this is a difficult guy, this guy's a pain in the ass or whatever. They need to not be allowed to have firearms, even though I know that won't stop them. Well, Sometimes. it'll stop them. It's a lot harder to kill three other people if you're not using a gun. But I'm saying that they could get a firearm still. Yes, especially in Maine. It's but very I'm not up on what the laws are. But if someone has a restraining order against them, it should be a violation. They shouldn't be allowed to own a firearm. And if they're found with one, it should be a violation right, of the restraining order, just like if they're on Carol probation. Carol Tuttle Jr., who shot his wife, Lori Hayden, their son, 25-year-old Dustin Tuttle, and their neighbor, Michael Spaulding, there was no restraining order. No. So it's a move Yeah, I guess it is moot. Well, yeah. one of the things that bugs me about this, here's some of the quotes. Freeman Buzzy Buzzell, who has operated a barbershop <laughs> in Madison name. since 1963, Buzzell. says, It's a whole different world, I think, now. I don't know what the reason is for it, but it was a whole different world back when I was growing up. We never heard about any of the violence or anything. And I think that, but I think the thing is, maybe they never heard about it. A lot of domestic violence stuff wasn't even reported in newspapers. Or people had a totally different. And people had a totally. And you look at the way things were reported anyway. When we did the Blanche Kimball case, she was murdered in her house. And it was a tiny little story. And so things were reported. There well, the other thing was people didn't tend to leave as often. So maybe 40 or 50 years ago, she would have just stayed in the right. abusive marriage. And what marriage. happened in the house And no one would have helped her. And he wouldn't have shot anyone because no one would have been helping right. her. Right. Another guy says, the whole world's changing, but I still think Madison's a pretty safe place. And it's just like I was saying before, yes, Madison is safe unless you're living with the wrong person. Yes. And the same guy says, and this is from a Morning Sentinel article of July 6th, written by Doug Harlow. He says he thought the shootings were, quote, an isolated domestic violent incident. Yes, they were. And that's obvious, but domestic violence is never really isolated yeah. because it takes how the community reacts to it to do something about it. That's right. And I saw the news, and I'm so happy that they didn't put any quotes like this in this story. Maybe they did in yesterday's, and I missed it. I can't believe anything like this would happen here. I think a quote like that was in the Boston Globe story. And, yeah, somebody always says that, and it's the most useless quote in the world, because I'll tell you something. If somebody's going to kill their fucking wife and kid and their neighbor because he's a domestic violence asshole, you know where it's going to happen? fucking small town Maine. Yeah. If you're going to get murdered in small town Maine, chances are this is the kind of murder you're going to be involved in. Some asshole with a gun Mm -hmm. who thinks he has a right to kill people. Everybody, just stop saying I can't believe it can't happen here and start looking at ways to to not have it happen. Yeah. And you can't change the way people think, but I think the fact that people believe things like that don't happen here, first of all, 
where the fuck have they been for the past <laughs> 10 or 20 years? They and have very all, short memories because it happens and, all the time. Right, and attitudes like that are what keep, for instance, state budgets from advocating, you know, from putting more money towards things that will help, and particularly mental health, I know I was going to go on, and gun control laws, which we really don't have in Maine. No. Want a gun? Who needs Just that? Just go get one. But in any case, that's our main news of the day. Mm-hmm. Great. And our topic today is also related to Maine news. New England. Well, yeah. Well, it is, because we've done the Tony Sanborn, that was episode 22, and we did yes. an update. And originally... When we did our first episode, we mentioned that a profiler had said that the murder of Jessica Briggs in 1989 on the Portland State Pier, Main State Pier in Portland, looked more like the work of a serial killer than an angry teenage boyfriend. Well, Amy Fairfield, the relentless defense attorney, Tony Sanborn is out on bail and she's fighting to, after serving 27 years for this murder, and she's fighting to keep him out. At a hearing, had two serial killers testify, but two Serial profilers for the defense. <laughs> Two serial killers. Two serial killers. <laughs> well, I would have well, done it that way. Well, you should mention that. Sorry. But because of that, one of those fucking true crime documents. But two <laughs> profilers have said that Briggs was probably killed by a serial killer. And one of the possible serial killers that came up is the Connecticut Valley serial Ooh. killer of New Hampshire and Vermont of the late 70s and early 80s. He so took a I'm, main vacation? He took a main vacation. Well, serial killers like to roam. Well, New England's small. It is. Know. And we'll get to more of that in my okay. story. Oh, so good. why don't I get right and into it? And, you know, it? I have not heard much about this Connecticut. Ca- someday I hope to be able to say Connecticut. <laughs> or spell Connecticut. That's Connecticut. Well, here we go. Okay. The Connecticut River begins at 4th Connecticut Lake on the border of northern New Hampshire and Quebec. Skipping through the Connecticut Lakes chain mm. in the towns of Pittsburgh and Colebrook before slicing south. At 410 miles, yeah, I know, when are you going to get to the fucking murders? I'm just saying, I'm I just didn't joking. say I'm that. saying it to our listeners. Maybe they like your storytelling. Okay. Thank you. At 410 miles, it's New England's longest river, separating Vermont and New Hampshire, cutting through western Massachusetts and bisecting the state of Connecticut and ultimately emptying into Long Island Sound. Ooh. Well, the southern portion is home to some of New England's largest population centers, Springfield, Mass., and Hartford, Connecticut. The huge northern portion of the Rivers Valley feeds some of New England's most fertile farming area and is largely rural. It's also the home to towns like Hanover, where Dartmouth College mm-hmm. is located. But they're small towns. Run For New England, it. they're considered medium And the, uh, doesn't Route 89 kind of run along that the- I'm getting to Okay, that. I was trying to picture where it was is all. I, I know. Well, okay. I'm helping. That's why I'm painting this okay. picture of... Funny you should ask. Okay. Interstate 91 mm. is its asphalt equivalent. Oh, a, a north, 91. South, I know north, it was one of those numbers. Same difference. A north-south artery from more populated Connecticut, Massachusetts, <sighs> to Vermont, New Hampshire, ski areas, and then Quebec. Feeding into 91 is 89. Oh, that's okay. Which goes from 93 in New Hampshire, which is also north-south. Crisscrosses the state and connects to 91 in um, Vermont. Ah. Listeners of this podcast will be familiar with the Connecticut River Valley in New Hampshire as the area where Maura Moritis appeared in the Woodsville Haverhill area and where Clark Rockefeller, or his real name, Christian Gerhardt Schneider, attempted Gerhardt, to forge. No, it's Gerhardt. It wasn't Gerhardt Schneider. I don't know. Gerhardt Schreider. Gerhardt Schreider. Gerhardt Schreider attempted to forge a quiet life with his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. 
It's also home to what some believe is New England's most prolific and yet-to-be-caught serial killer. Or maybe there's more than one. Could be more than one. Before we start, a note. There isn't a whole lot of information on this case. There is information, but not, you know, the amount you'd find on, say, the Green River Killer or others, or the cases connected to this. But the blogosphere being what it is, there are wildly different theories. <laughs> a lot of supposition, misinformation. No, that doesn't no, happen on the I internet. Know. I know. It's, I was shocked. shocked. <laughs> oh, sorry. So I tried to take information from the most credible sources I could. And the bare bones of this I took from Wikipedia, although I saw the, saw the exact same stuff on blogs and other posts. Because people cut and Everybody's plagiarizing each other. Plagiarizing. At least I'm giving credit where it's due, unless somebody plagiarized to put it on Wikipedia. I don't know. But I did check whatever information I used against newspaper and other sources to be sure it was accurate. I always think of it on The Office when Michael Scott goes, you know the great thing about Wikipedia? Anybody who wants can put anything on there. You know, that's what makes it so reliable. Yes. But I also watched two true crime documentaries in which had issues of their own. Yeah, I bet. And more on that later. <laughs> one I just did they have reenactments, I hope? They did. But <laughs> one of them, there's a gimmick to it that I just want to totally oh, okay. shred. In any case, depending on who you talk to, Six to seven stabbing murders of women ranging in age from 17 to 27 from 1978 to 1987 along the River Valley were victims of this killer. Hmm. There also are numerous other people who could be victims, depending on who you believe the killer is, and depending on how much attention people pay to other murders that weren't in this exact geographical area. And now, as I said earlier, profilers in the defense effort for Anthony Sanborn, the Portland, Maine man who is out on bail after 27 years in prison for the 1989 stabbing murder of 16-year-old Jessica Briggs in Portland, say she may be a victim of this killer, too. And for those of you who don't live in New England, if you drive straight across New Hampshire or Maine, you can probably get to Portland from the Connecticut River Valley in about two hours or two and a half. Yeah. If you take the interstate and go down 93 to 101 and across, like some people do, it's going to take you longer. New England's a small place. Yes. The states are small. They're packed together. And it's not unheard of for people no. to cross the state lines. And if Briggs isn't the victim of the Connecticut Valley serial killer. There's plenty to go around. When did you say he started? 76? Or Eight. That, oh, 78, okay. And maybe earlier. Because the chilling fact about serial killers is that there are more than you'd expect. At any time, according to some sources, there are 75 active serial killers in the United States. Wow. To give the story some context, I checked state cold case lists, and I'll link them to our website when okay. I get around to doing that, <laughs> and murdered women in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine from 1965 to 1995, just to see where these deaths, as well as Briggs, stood as far as type. The problem with the list is they don't always say how someone was murdered, but there are close to 200, and I'm not even talking about missing people who were probably murdered, Close to 200 women. Wow. Not even, and I'm not even counting men just for the purposes of the story. Close to 200 in those three little states, unsolved murders wow. in those 30 years. Wow. And there are That's some stabbing lot. murders. There's a couple who was stabbed in their home in New Hampshire in the early 90s. So there's a lot of stabbing murders and other murders that I'm not sure of. And here's an example. I remember this one when I worked for the New Hampshire Union Leader. This is from the New Hampshire State website on cold cases. I'm not sure where the original copy is from. The White Mountains in New Hampshire have some of the most beautiful scenery in North America. Oh, they're like me. They like to start with us. Well, you have, to, you have to create the setting. Yep. 
There are dangers associated with the weather and altitude of Mount Washington and its many neighbors. By the way, Mount Washington is the highest mountain east of the Mississippi at yes. 6,000 feet. And it also has had the highest winds at 238 miles per hour. And it's in New Hampshire. One thing that visitors to this area don't often worry about is murder. Well, I would, but I'm different from other people. <laughs> On November 15, 2001, 52-year-old Louise Chaput is believed to have been stabbed to death ah. near the parking lot of Glen Ellis Falls at Pinkham Notch. Now, Pinkham Notch is not in the Connecticut River Valley, but as you know, New Hampshire narrows the farther north you get, and this is in the the presidential range, and I would say it's a, you could drive there from Hanover somewhere in an hour, I'm yeah. not totally sure, somebody can correct me. She was from Canada, she was from Quebec. And she took a small vacation to go hiking. Aww. Her body was found on November 22, 2001. She's a social worker from Sherbrooke, Quebec, and she had suffered numerous stab wounds. Ugh. Police believe she was murdered near nightfall. She Where's was never- nightfall? Sorry, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, this little town. <laughs> They've never found her Aww. killer. Now, this was in 2001, so it's a little after, a lot after the Connecticut. You never know, though. Right. She was stabbed to death, and they've never found her killer. And there are a lot of those people stabbed to death whose killers were never found. That's so weird. So it is weird. And so you wonder how many things could be the same person and people just aren't putting them together. In any case, Kathy Milliken, no relation. It's spelled M-I-L-L-I-C-A-N. Although our original name in Ireland was M-E-L-I-C-A-N. So we could be related way back. We'll have to go to Ancestry.com. Well, I've met a lot of Millikans in this area that are spell Yankee. it the same way. And they're, one guy told me his descendants were Scottish. A lot of right. them are it's from England. It's a Yankee England, name so, and yeah. Yankee in the New England sense where it's Anglo-Saxon. But we'll just say our great-grandfather got on the boat as M-E-L-I-C-A-N from County Clare. He got off the boat as M-I-L-L-I-K-E-N. So maybe he didn't want people to know he was Irish, so they give him a job. Although I'm sure his brogue, red, yeah. red hair and freckles probably gave him away. But in any case, on October 24, 1978, 27-year-old Milliken was, fo- was photographing birds mm. at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. Hmm. New London, while technically not in the Connecticut River Valley, is close enough. It's a half hour or so east on Route 11, one of those typical yeah. New England artery roads that people take. Many um, times. And from Claremont, you can take Claremont, New Hampshire, is kind of the epicenter for these murders. So it w- she wasn't too far away. And the day after she was last seen, her body, with at least 29 stab wounds, was found yards away from where she was last seen. Mm. They never found a killer. I don't think they have many clues. On July 25, 1981, 37-year-old University of Vermont student Mary Elizabeth Critchley disappeared while hitchhiking. Mm. She was last spotted near I-91 at the Massachusetts-Vermont border, and she'd been hitchhiking up to Waterbury, Vermont, where she lived with a friend. On August 9, 1981, so a couple weeks later, her body was found in a wooded area off Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire, near the Sugar River. Despite the fact it was two weeks after her death, her body was so decomposed that they couldn't determine a cause of death. Hot, humid, you know. Critters. 16-year-old nurse's aide Bernice Courtmanch was last seen by her boyfriend's mother in Claremont, New Hampshire, on May 30th, 1984. She was thought to have set out to see her boyfriend in Newport, which is also in the Connecticut River Valley, north of Claremont, by hitchhiking along Route 12. She didn't reach her destination and was subsequently reported missing. Two months later, 
On July 20, 1984, 27-year-old Ellen Freed, a supervising nurse at Valley Regional Hospital in Claremont. Hmm. A lot of these people are nurses or connected to hospitals. But that could just be because, for instance, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital is one yeah. of the biggest employers yeah. in the area. Yeah. You know, it could be a coincidence. And a lot of people, especially back then, a lot of women were nurses because there weren't as many of them. Yeah. But she made a late, late night stop to use a payphone, something people don't do anymore, yeah. outside Leo's Market in Claremont. And she was calling her sister. She talked to her for about an hour. What? On a payphone? Yes. People did back then if they didn't I have phone Oh, so she didn't have a phone at home, you're saying. So she went, Probably not. went to the payphones. Yeah, people did used to do that. It doesn't say it doesn't say whether she had a phone or home, but we all know. If you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, you know that he has talked about going to some payphone and talking to girlfriends for hours and hours and yeah, hours in yeah. the freezing cold. So people who didn't have phones, and a lot of them didn't back then because they cost money, or they were in between living situations yeah. or whatever, did that. But she said to her sister at one point that a car just went by and it looked weird. Mm. She didn't really say what was odd about it. But then she said, hold on a minute. Uh-oh. Her sister heard an engine turnover. Then Ellen came back to the phone and said she just wanted to make sure her car could start. The I think the supposition is there that she wanted to be sure her car would start right up so she could get out. She probably had a junker or beat yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. She and her sister talked a few more minutes, and then she hung up. Freed didn't report to work the next day. Her car was found abandoned on Jarvis Road a few miles away from the market. That, where she'd been using the payphone. On July 10th, 1985, 27-year-old single mother, Eva Morse, was last seen hitchhiking near the border of Claremont and These Charleston. These girls? Well, you know, I know. people, we hitchhike too. I know? know. Charleston, New Hampshire, on Route 12. And New, Route 12 is kind of the north-south two-lane that goes up and down mm-hmm. the New Hampshire side of the river. She was never seen again and also reported missing. On September 19th, 1985... Freed's remains, and she's the one who was talking on the payphone, were found in a wooded area near the Sugar River in Kellyville, which is part of Unity, New Hampshire. You know, that's the same river that Portmunch his remains were found by, the same area. Postmortem examination revealed evidence of multiple stab wounds and probable sexual assault. Mm. On April 15, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was doing yard work outside her home in Saxton's River, Vermont, on the other side of the river, a short distance from I-91. That evening, her husband returned home to find her dead body. Hmm. She'd been stabbed multiple times, and the crime scene suggested a fierce struggle. Many witnesses reported seeing a slightly stocky, dark-haired man with a blue knapsack lingering around her house that Mm. day of murder. He was thought to be between 20 and 25, clean-shaven, with a somewhat round face, wearing dark-rimmed glasses. Hmm. And the following year, they finally, when they put this together, they finally did a composite sketch. Four days after Moore's murder, a fisherman found Bernice Courtmanch's remains about a thousand yards from where Freed's remains had been recovered. That's also where, along the same river in the same general area, where Critchley, the mm. first one of the first victims' remains were found. Forensic examination uncovered evidence of knife wounds to the neck and an injury to the head. Six days later, the remains of Eva Morse were found by loggers about 500 feet from where Critchley had been found in 1981. We're now in 1986. Mm -hmm. Post-mortem examination found evidence of knife wounds to Morse's neck. 
you know, well, people are bones, decomposed, so, but its bones yeah. show the They scrape. show scrapes, yeah. On January 1987, 38-year-old nurse Barbara Agnew was returning from a skiing vacation with, not a vacation, but a day, with friends in Stratton, Vermont, and she was reported missing the next day. The same day she was reported missing, a snowplow driver saw her green BMW at a northbound I-91 rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. The door was cracked and there was blood on the steering wheel. Mm. Police connected it to her. And I was working that night at the Union Leader. I was a young reporter and I actually did that story by phone. I didn't go up to Vermont. But I do remember that. And that's one reason this serial killer has always stuck in my mind. Because it was a few years later, actually, I think, when they finally connected Agnew. Some people don't believe she was part of it. And you'll find out why later. But on March 28, 1987. There's so many things that are going to happen later. Oh, <laughs> On March 28, 1987, her body was found near an apple tree in Heartland, Vermont, and she had been stabbed to death. One of the things that they found odd was there was a heavy snowstorm the night she disappeared, and she was 10 miles from home, and they wondered why she had pulled over to a rest stop when she was only 10 miles from home. But I can see why if you're, for instance, if your windshield wipers are clogging up with ice and you need to get out and clump them off, I mean, I'd stop for reasons like that in snowstorms. I don't think it's that odd, but... We'll find out there may be a reason later. On August 6, 1988, 22-year-old Jane Borowski, who was seven months pregnant, Aww. was returning home from a fair in Keene, New Hampshire, and she stopped at a closed convenience store in West Swansea to buy a soda from the vending machine. Mm-hmm. I've done that she, before. She was hot and thirsty. She said it was a very muggy night. She returned to her car and began drinking the soda when she saw a car. She later said she thought it was a Jeep Wagoneer pull up next to her. And she saw in her rearview mirror the driver walking around the back of her car. And he approached her open window and asked if the payphone was working. And before she could answer, so I guess it doesn't matter what he asked, he grabbed her by the neck and pulled Ah! pulled her from the vehicle. And she struggled, and he weirdly accused her of beating up his girlfriend, asked if she had Massachusetts plates on her car, and she said, no, I have New Hampshire plates, but it didn't deter him, who stabbed That's her 27 weird. times oh, my God. before driving away and leaving her to die. And she's interviewed in both of the documentaries I watched, and her focus was on protecting her unborn oh, baby. Yeah. And he didn't stab her at all in the stomach. He stabbed her in the neck and arm. She had tendon damage to her hands so from defensive weird, wounds. Though. He stabbed her in the neck. She was bleeding well, all over the place. weird that he left her there. And her baby was later born with what time of the day cerebral was it? palsy. It wasn't night. It was dark out. It, depending on which documentary you watch, she either got up to her hands and knees and he drove by again and she was scared to death he was going to get out and stab her. The other documentary says she yelled something like, before he stabbed her much or before he pulled her out of her car and did something to her and then started walking away and she said, fuck you, asshole, and he came back and started stabbing her and she regrets saying it. It all depends on Hmm. her stories in the different documentaries were a little different and I don't blame her at all. It was a traumatic event that's ruined her life. Her daughter was born with cerebral, mild cerebral palsy, but she was able to give a description of the guy. Hmm. She also managed to get in her car bleeding and turn around and drive down to a friend's house. Wow. And she realized at one point she was behind his car. The, oh, the my her God. House, and while they were in the house, he apparently turned around and drove by very slowly. Ah! She had a severed jugular vein. Oh, my God. She's lungs, lucky a she kidney lived. laceration and severed tendons in her Jeez. knees and thumb. And it's a miracle her baby. It's a miracle she lived. lived. Yes. And she got the first three characters of the plate of his Wagoneer, despite all that. And so at this point, they had two composite sketches of 
That's and her and did her description was it? It's a similar kind of similar okay. to the other guy. Well, they also formed a task force because that's what they do. And they got criminal profiler John Philippin. He was in the documentary that I saw on Investigative Discovery, THE Investigates. I don't know what THE stands for. And they did an Unsolved Mysteries in 1991. The documentary I saw he was on was made in, I think, 2003 or so. I always, I always picture Robert Stack, Unsolved Mysteries, telling the story. But mm-hmm. there were other possible victims as well mm-hmm. that haven't been tied in for various reasons, depending on who you think the suspect was yes. and other things. Joanne Dunham, 14, was sexually assaulted and strangled on June 11, 1968 in Charlestown, New Hampshire. And Philip Ginsburg, who wrote a book about this called Shadow of Death that I wanted to read but haven't yet, he believes she was a victim. Nobody else believes in it. And he believes it was because she was close geographically, but she wasn't stabbed. Mm. On October 5th, 1982, 76-year-old Sylvia Gray was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death in a wooded area a few hundred yards from her Plainfield, New Hampshire home. And that was the day after she was reported missing. And I think Mm. she's believed to not be by many people because of her age Mm. and because of the bludgeoning. 38-year-old Stephen Hill was last seen on June 20, 1986, retrieving his paycheck from his Lebanon, New Hampshire employer. And Lebanon is up near Hanover in the Connecticut River Valley. And on July 15th, and it seems like a lot of these did happen in the summer. Yeah. Like July, things heated up. You know, his body Maybe was he's found. A, he's a summer person. Yeah. His body was found with multiple stab wounds in Heartland, Vermont, across the river from where Sylvia Gray's body had been found four years earlier. And also Heartland is where Barbara Agnew's body was found. On June 24th, 1988, decomposed body parts consisting of arms and legs mm. and belonging to a woman were found along Route 78 in Warwick, Mass., which is less than a mile from the New Hampshire border off 91. The entire body was believed to have been dismembered. The head and torso were never found and believed to have been disposed of elsewhere, although if the body was dismembered and dumped, critters could have taken off. Yeah, you never know. Investigators believe it was a homicide. <laughs> yeah. The victim, although you can, I guess somebody can die of other causes and you can and still dismember. And if it falls apart, yeah. But why go through the well, yeah. trouble of dismembering yeah. somebody if you didn't kill them? That's true. She was described as white average height with an athletic type body. How do her, they know that from her bones? I, um, I anyways, guess they her bones. Her identity is still unknown and they haven't solved that homicide. That was 1988, mm. June. On July 25th, 1989, and so this would have been about a month after Jessica Briggs was killed in Portland, 14-year-old Carrie Moss of New Boston, New Hampshire, and New Boston is in the same area New London is, the same general <laughs> geographic area, left her parents' home to visit friends in Goffstown, which is to the west of Manchester, and she disappeared. Almost two years later, and I remember this one, I was working at the Union Leader at the time. On July 24, 1991, her skeletal remains were found in a, in a wooded area in New Boston. And they couldn't determine her cause of death, but they figured it was a homicide. And when we discuss the suspects, which we'll do in a few minutes, because of who they are and where they live, even more murders come into play. In the summer of 2000, Molly Bish worked as a lifeguard at Commons Pond mm-hmm. in Warren, I remember her. Right? Yeah. Warren uh-huh. Massachusetts, Central Massachusetts, was her she was all excited it was her first day being a lifeguard and she was 15 and on June 26 2000 the day before she disappeared her mother dropped her off her mother Maggie Bish dropped her off and 
she saw a mustached man in a white sedan in the parking lot of the beach where the lifeguard post was located. He looked suspicious. He was smoking a cigarette, but it being, you know, back when it was, she didn't think much more of it. And that was the day before Molly disappeared. Aww. Why did I say it was the first day of her work? It was actually her seventh day on the job. On June 27th, her, her mother week. dropped her off, dropped her off close to the lifeguard station, and she didn't see the stranger or the vehicle that she had seen the previous day, so she was looking for it. But um, another person said that he saw a man matching the guy's description in the parking lot just minutes before Molly arrived that day. Another person also saw a similar car parked at a cemetery connected to the pond by a path nearby mm. that day. Maggie Dish was the last person to see her daughter before she disappeared. Several hours later, police contacted Molly's parents because no lifeguard had been on duty all day, and they wondered where she was. Her belongings were sitting there next to the lifeguard station. It looked like she had started taking her stuff, her book, and everything out. And an extensive search was immediately launched to find her. It was the largest and most expensive search for a missing person ever in Massachusetts. Wow. Her case was profiled on numerous television yeah, shows, I've so some people maybe that. you know disappeared. America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Forty Eight Hours. I've seen it on at least Forty Eight Hours, if not, and I remember it too. Right, they found her remains on June 9, two thousand three, five miles from her family home. A hunter had seen a blue bathing suit in the woods on Aww. Whiskey Hill in Palmer, Massachusetts, in the fall two thousand two, but he somehow was unfamiliar with the whole thing and didn't think much of it. In 2003, he mentioned the bathing suit to Tim McGuigan, who I guess is just another person, I don't know, who made the possible connection to Bish and contacted police. They searched the area and found her remains. Her parents, Maggie and John, who separated and divorced after the whole thing. Her father was a county official in Worcester County. I can't remember if he was a uh, worked for the prosecutor's office or something, but they her ended up Her poor mother must have felt so guilty. I know. And they started the Molly Bish Foundation with the goal to spread the word about child safety. Another little girl missing in Western Massachusetts around the same time was Holly Perrine, and I can never pronounce her name right. And that was, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But she may, she's often been tied with the Bish case. So suspects the Connecticut Valley serial killings that have come up over the years. There was one Delbert Tallman. He had confessed to killing, on May 20th, 1984, 16-year-old Heidi Martin in Heartland, Vermont, which is where Barbara Agnew and... Stephen Hill? Stephen Hill's remains were found. Good memory. Thank you. That's because I used to work with someone with the same name. After she went for a jog, her body was found in a swampy area behind mm. Heartland Elementary School. She'd been raped and stabbed to death. 21-year-old Tallman confessed. He was tried. He later recanted and was acquitted. Nearly three years later, that's where Barbara Agnew's body was found, about a mile from where Martin's remains were discovered. Tallman had lived in Bellows Falls, Springfield, and Windsor, Vermont, and Claremont, New Hampshire. Huh. This is the, and again, that's the episode. Interesting. He had been convicted in 1996, or he was later convicted in 1996, on two counts of lewd and lascivious conduct with a child. He <sighs> was jailed in Florida. There's a lot of Florida connections to the story you'll see, too. That's because Florida is where all the weirdos end up. Sorry, Floridians. And, and you native Floridians, it's not you, but people go there for some yes. reason. Especially people from, like, northern New England. It's like, it's it's like things flow down there, like, into a funnel. Yeah, yep. But he was incarcerated for failure to comply with the sex offender registration requirements, and hmm. he got out of jail in October of 2010. Well, I wish I knew more about his his um, his confession. I know. I, I admit there were a lot of there's a lot of little 
connections to this that I haven't fully researched. Well, Maybe I'll do pretty, an update someday. Yeah, it's, it's but complicated. But a, a lot of the blogosphere cons- considers Heidi Martin's death unsolved because he... Um, he may or may not, yeah. Right, I mean. he, re- he recanted. I find it interesting that he was acquitted after he recanted his confession because that usually doesn't happen very often. Yeah, well, even, it may be that was all they had. Yeah, but even then, you know, I know. it's... There's no other evidence that he was involved in any of the other cases, so he's not really... He uh, just was there. Right, yeah. he just was in the area and confessed to killing Heidi Martin. There's probably a lot of weirdos. The most logical suspect is a man named Michael Nicolau, and there's a lot about him. One of the documentaries I watched, the T-H-E... You mean I-D? <laughs> focused on, on him a lot. A private investigator <laughs> had been contacted in 2001 by the mother of a woman who had been married to Michelau. The woman's name was Marie Ashley. She was from Vermont. She had lots of family in the Connecticut River Valley in Vermont and New Hampshire. But in December of 1988, her mom contacted Lynn Marie Carty, a PI, because Michelle and her two kids had disappeared. Michael Nicolau, who actually he and Ashley, Michelle and Ashley, weren't married. They were living together and had kids. He was a Vietnam veteran who'd been a helicopter pilot in the Army. His battalion mates, or whatever they're called, <laughs> said he liked, he had a taste for blood and liked to have them set him down so he could go hunting humans. He and several of his mates in 1970 were charged with strafing civilians while on a reconnaissance Ugh. mission in the Mekong Delta. Murder and attempted murder charges were ultimately dropped, and he returned home, according to what I'm reading here, disgraced and bitter, subsequently filing a suit against the Army, which he didn't win because you can't sue the Army. During um, that and the remainder of his life, he received treatment for PTSD from the VA. He moved to Virginia... And he opened a sex shop there called The Pleasure Chest hmm. in the 1980s. That's an original name. Yeah, he's he was a clever guy. And the store was raided twice. He and his business partner were charged with selling obscene materials. They were convicted. Well, it's called The Pleasure Chest? I know. They were convicted one time, and there was a mistrial another time. And he said to the a newspaper down there in the Progress at one point, evidently the police don't have enough serious robberies, murders, and rapes to occupy their time. But in any case, that trial and everything's important. So just remember. I'll, I'll but keep he it met he met Michelle Ashley down there, and they moved to Holyoke, Mass, where they had two kids, Nick and Joy. And Holyoke is right on I ninety one, just a quick jaunt up to Vermont. Mm-hmm. Michelle Ashley's family regarded him as strange and quiet. By the way, he looks a lot like the description of Molly Vicious Killer. Their marriage was troubled. Well, not their marriage, but their relationship. Their and she tried to leave him and take the kids. And she told her family that she feared for her life. She eventually got back together. She left him for a while, but got back together with him. But she had told family members she was going to leave him for good in December ni- 18, uh, 18, December <laughs> 1988. Her mother that month dropped by the home to check on her daughter and the grandkids because she hadn't talked to them and she found spoiled food in the fridge, an abandoned baby book, and nobody in the apartment. Uh-oh. There was no trace of her daughter, her grandchildren, or Nicolau. And so she contacted private investigator Linda Carty, who she knew somehow. <laughs> Carty was able to find Nicolau through some cursory internet research and she called him. He was living in Georgia 
And he initially asked her how she found him, duh. And he didn't. And he said he didn't even know who Michelle Ashton oh, what was. A then he lion. said he didn't know anything about her. And then he said she was a slut, and that's his words, not mine. Who had been doing drugs and ran off, abandoning the kids. Yeah, which sure. Michelle's mother said that she wouldn't do that. He said I love that the, the kids, way they always try to. Right. He said the kids were fine, and Cardi confirmed that by reaching the son the following day. I'm not sure how old he was, but according to this, he tearfully described life with his combat traumatized father. Had since remarried, and that's he's their biological father, right? They had the kids yes. were his. Okay. Yes, they were his kids. By 2005, Nicolau's second wife Eileen had also sought help to escape from him after he'd attacked her. On December 31st, 2005, he tracked her down to her sister's home in Tampa, Florida, wearing a black suit and tie because you do want to dress up when you're going to kill people. And you just gu- spoiled I'm it. Sorry, carrying a guitar case filled with guns. Ah. Nice touch. He led his wife and his 20-year-old stepdaughter, not one of his biological kids, but his 20-year-old stepdaughter, Taryn Bowman, into a bedroom while his sister-in-law fled the house to summon police. Before police could get there, the SWAT team was on its way. He shot Eileen, Taryn, and himself. And Cardi, the private investigator, read about it in the newspaper. She decided then and there that she would look into him and his past. And she overturned some information about the Connecticut Valley River killings. And she believed he could have been a suspect in that. Yeah. And one of his ex-wives was a nurse. And, you know, that shared with some of the victims. His residence in Holyoke was about 90 miles from Claremont. And you just go north up I-91 and then cross the river. If I were going to kill, if I were a serial killer, I wouldn't do it. Some of them, yeah. I mean, you can go somewhere convenient and do it and come back. You don't shit where you eat, as the saying goes. And she was able to determine that Michelle had relatives in the area. The baby book put her in, in um, Hanover in 1986. He also owned a Jeep Wagoneer, which, oh, if we remember, Jane Borowski said. Yes. In fact, Linda Carty began communicating with Borowski, and it was, oh, here it is. The show is THS Investigates Serial Killers on the Loose. Ooh, on on the Loose. And she showed Borowski pictures of Nicolau, and Borowski agreed that there was some resemblance between him and the man who attacked her. This says, and remember this because it'll come up with the other TV show, the culmination of Cardi's interactions with Borowski was that Borowski is now convinced that Michael Nicolau was her attacker, and by extension, the Connecticut River Valley killer. New Hampshire cold case detectives in 2007 said they were examining surviving physical evidence as well as his personal possible connection to the case and i couldn't find anything after that that determined if that came up with anything Hmm. a story in the saint petersburg times about cardi's interest in the serial killings in nicolau says that he earned two purple hearts two silver stars and two bronze stars in vietnam before the whole civilian strafing thing he had actually hoped to write a story he wanted to find somebody to teach him to write so he could write about what happened with him in Vietnam. Hmm. But as Ben Montgomery writes, decades blurred into a roaring whirlwind of paranoia, failed jobs, criminal charges, disconnected phone numbers, and dysfunctional relationships. Yes. This is a great line. I love this line in this story. And this was written shortly after the murders in Florida. The noise ceased when the bullets did a week ago in Tampa. <laughs> but so obviously him, but mentally his, ill. Right. And his wife, just a reminder, his wife Michelle had disappeared in 1988. His wife Eileen, the one he had killed a month before the killing, broke her shoulder and he told Georgia police that he and his son 
had run over her with the Jeep by accident. His wife Eileen was 45 when she died, and her daughter was 20, by the way. His childhood in New Jersey, apparently he told people his mother molested him and his father beat him. Hmm. He was always finding substitute father figures, a high school buddy's dad, a superior soldier, his father-in-law. He rode a motorcycle to Farmingdale High School in Long Island, where friends cheered him at wrestling matches. Hmm. Afterwards, they would take their girlfriends to a local hamburger joint. Wow, it sounds just like an episode of Happy Days, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. It says, it was Nicolau who came up with the idea of dropping a rooster into the women's bathroom and skipping out on a check, said Mark D'Angelo, a lifelong friend. What? Okay, he remembers Nicolau saying, when the girls start screaming, so I think the rooster in the bathroom was supposed to be a distraction, okay. so then they could leave. He craved adventure. In the Army, he could fly Huey helicopters with no college degree. He boasted about stealing a helicopter while in boot camp and leaving it on a roof. Hmm. After boot camp, the story slowed. At a welcome home party, Nikolaus said he wasn't allowed to talk about Vietnam. To get silver stars, you had to be a really good warrior, and we realized that's what he was and did, his friend D'Angelo says. Over the years, people confused him with a Virginia cousin by the same name, causing problems for the cousin. There were unpaid fines, a hit and <laughs> crash. He actually met Ashley in Nicolau, according to the story, met Ashley in New York. They married in the mid-1980s, and it says she went from being a bubbly young woman to a paranoid wife, her Aww. family said. So this story says they were married. Ashley, but Michelle, oh, Michelle Ash. Okay. Right. He ran her life, said her aunt, Linda Glamazina. It was like taking over another person. That's one of those red flags. Yeah. When Nicolau and Michelle visited the Glamazinas in Louisiana, he wore, he wore skimpy shorts that she found indecent. <laughs> he brought a stash from his Charlottesville, Virginia porn shop, and Ew. she was disgusted and threw it in the Mississippi River. She said there was something scary about him. So she disappeared in 1988. Who, Michelle? Yeah, in okay. December 1988. Yes. Just days after the family vanished, Michael Nicolau met up with a female acquaintance in Charlottesville. The kids were dirty and hungry, and he stole the woman's brand new car, the woman later told Michelle's aunt. There were calls to police, but nothing panned out. That's when the mother hired the private investigator, and her mother told her mother, whose name was Rose Young, told the investigator that Michelle had once said, wait for it. If I'm ever missing, he killed me, and you need to track him down and find the kids. Yeah. By 1992, he was in Boca Raton, Florida, and he told his friend D'Angelo, who we quoted earlier, who bumped into him there, that Michelle was dead, <laughs> and he told other people she ran off with a Cuban drug dealer. Oh, Jesus. He later visited his friend, and the kids, Joy was six at the time, Nick was four, were dirty, their sneakers were worn, they looked hungry, and they had been living in a car. Aww. And he wanted his friend to help him write the book about Vietnam. <laughs> in 1996, he started getting treatment for PTSD. He ended up leaving Florida because the state, he said the state wanted his kids, and he called them his sole reason for living. In 1997, he and his kids stayed with a friend in Dade City, Florida, and Nicholas, who was nine, got in a fight with the boy next door, and Nicolau pleaded no contest to torching the neighbor's car and got three years of probation because his nine-year-old boy got in a fight with a neighbor. So the little boy must have been a baby when his mother disappeared. Yes, yeah. he was. Okay. So Holyoke, Massachusetts detective Kevin Boyle in 2005 told a Boston TV station that the factors surrounding this case are suspicious and Michael's actions are suspect. That's about Michelle Ashley's disappearance. And Eileen Nicolau... Her only flaw, her sister recalled, was that she had poor judgment in men. They met through newspaper personal ads, which those of you pre-internet remember. Yeah. They moved in. Him and his kids moved in with her two weeks after they met. And the daughter was already calling her mom when relatives visited a few weeks after that. They were love-starved. 
Oh, I bet they were. The poor kid. He seemed charismatic. He called of his father-in-law Pappy. He helped him cook Christmas Eve dinners. They got married in Las Vegas about four years before the killings. In the wedding photo, their faces are superimposed over other people's bodies. In 2004, a family friend discovered an online news story about Michelle Nicolau's disappearance, as they call her in the story, rather than Michelle Ashley. Hmm. Eileen had never had no idea that there was any issue with her disappearance. But what did she think? He had convinced her Michelle had run off. Oh, okay. But the, and, but he told her she had run off, but her family suspected he had killed her. Oh, okay. He had a heated argument with Eileen four weeks before the murder. He and his son got in their Jeep Wagoneer to leave the argument, and she approached the Jeep. She needed his military sticker to get on base to buy groceries. She told police that he threatened her with a pistol and told his kid to step on the gas. Ah. The Jeep hit her, and the two men took off. So that's when she broke her shoulder. So how old was the son then? Must If have this been... was 2005, the oh, son would okay. have been... Actually, he wasn't a man. He would have been a teenager, a teenager. an older teenager. Yeah. okay. Nicholas, the son, denied doing anything wrong. Nicholas Nikolai? Yeah. Mm. Like the Dickens story. Nicholas Nickleby. So Taryn, Eileen's daughter, and Eileen were living with family by New Year's Eve of that year. Just after noon, when Eileen's sister, Audrey Leone, opened the door on Walnut Street, Taryn rushed in and hugged her tightly. I could tell she was scared, Leone said. Leone remembers what happens next. Nicolau stepped into view. You didn't think you were ever going to see me again, Nicolau announced, entering the house. He approached Eileen in the dining room. What are you doing with a gun? Eileen asked him. Duh! Leon told him to get out. No, 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 Nicolau responded. I'm going to shoot myself over your mother's grave. If only he had. The sisters had struggled with their mother's recent death, so he was being an asshole. As Leon scrambled to get her two, her two children out of the home, call her father and call the police, Nicolau, Eileen, and Taryn walk toward a bedroom. Alina, Eileen, tells me really calmly, she goes, look, we're going to go into Pappy's room to talk, okay? I, this is the sister talking. I'm like, Taryn, Taryn, come here. She wouldn't budge. She went in there. She wouldn't come out. Either he had her afraid or she didn't want to leave her mom, Leon said. Probably both. Leon greeted police in the driveway when an officer announced herself and walked to the bedroom. Nicolau pointed a rifle at her. Eileen threw herself at the door, closing it. Outside ah. the door, police and family heard gunshots. In the room, they found Eileen, Taryn, both shot in the head. Taryn, fatally wounded, was lying on her mother's body. She died the next day. And Nicolau shot them before turning the gun on himself. Some people in the blogosphere don't think he's the Connecticut River Valley serial killer because he was in Virginia and dates of his court trial showed he lived in Virginia at the time. But his, he was married to Michelle Ashley. All her family was in the Connecticut River Valley. And if you notice, the killings were all at certain times of yeah, year. Yeah, they were in the summer. The time of year when you'd go up visit, visit family, family for the summer. Yeah. And, you know, from hot Virginia to nice. And it makes you wonder if, there, if, if what was going on down there. In the, in the, or, well, in Virginia. I know. In the wintertime. It time. makes you really wonder. Whoever wrote the article on Wikipedia points out another reason, quote-unquote reason, they think he, he may not be is because people also think he may be the Parkway killer in Virginia, the Route 29 stalker, the Blue Ridge Parkway <laughs> and the oh murder of Julianne Williams and Lolly Winans at Shenandoah National Park. He could be all of those. If he's a serial killer, they don't just... I think it's interesting that most of those Connecticut Valley serial killer murders were at the same time of year. They were. There's no physical evidence connecting him or anyone else to the Connecticut River murder. There's another... Possibly interesting suspect, a guy named Gary Westover, 
who's from Grafton, New Hampshire. He was a paraplegic, and on his deathbed in 1997, he told his uncle, Howard Minnan, that he and three buddies in 1987 went out for a night of partying. His buddies loaded Westover in his wheelchair into their van. They went to Vermont, where they abducted, murdered, and dumped 38-year-old Barbara Agnew, and she's the quote-unquote final Connecticut River area victim. He provided the names of three friends. Minnan wrote them down on a piece of paper. He told his wife, daughter, and law enforcement. However, he didn't feel law enforcement authorities were interested in his information. Westover died in 1998. Minnan died in 2006. In August 2006, one of his aunts wrote to Ann Agnew, Barbara Agnew's sister, and told her about this. Ann Agnew <sighs> forwarded the letter to Cardi, the P.I., who ran the name of Michael Nicolau by Westover's aunt, who said that the name sounded familiar. So he could have been one of the three guys, although it sounds like he's more of a lone wolf. Okay, so how do you say it to your friends? Oh, gee, let's go abduct and kill a woman. They think what they did, and this solves that tricky issue of her pulling into the rest area, that what happened is that they put him out there in his wheelchair in the snowstorm waving her down, and she was a caring person who would help anyone. She was a nurse. And a nurse, but she was also cited as a care, so that that was the bait to pull her yeah, into, and that's why they took their poor buddy. What so the fuck? So there's no evidence linking Gary Westover. If Michael Nicolau was one of his friends, maybe, but it doesn't sound like he's the kind of guy who would work in a. Um, it doesn't sound like the kind of guy who has many friends. There was another serial killer operating in the same place at the same time, Gary Schaefer. And he huh. was a Vermont native and a member of the fundamentalist Christadelphian Church. One of the, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Huh. Um, and he was a Navy guy. So many of these guys are connected to the military. Although it could well, have been the Times. The yeah. Times, but also, you know, if you, if, you know. He had been charged in the Navy with arson and possession of illegal drugs. Hmm. And he had pled insanity. But Navy psychiatrists found him competent. He was dishonorably discharged. This article in Murderpedia said he succeeded in convincing friends and relatives of his normality, but violent sexual obsessions simmered just below the surface of his quiet personality. In 1979, he kidnapped, raped, and murdered 13-year-old Sherry Nastasia in Springfield, Vermont. She lived in a complex. How did he kill her, does it say? It doesn't. In an apartment complex managed by his, his brother, in 1981, he did the same to Teresa Fenton. He also attacked 17-year-old Dina Buxton, but she in Brattleboro in 1982, but she survived. Hmm. She described him. Police liked him for it, as they say, but they had no evidence. <sighs> in 1983, he struck again in April, abducting Catherine Richards in Springfield, a teenager, drove her to a remote location where she was forced to give him a blowjob before he crushed her skull. Ah! Her body was discovered at noon on April 10th, the next day. Eyewitness descriptions of her abductor matched those of Deanna Buxton's assailant the previous year. They were working their way up to an arrest in September 1983 when the last victim's mother, Catherine Richards' mother, wrote an open letter that I assume was printed in newspapers or something. That's what you do with an open letter. Accusing him of murder and challenging him to confess his sins in accordance with the precepts of his church huh i'm surprised the newspapers ran it he cracked in custody confessing on two well it may not have been in newspapers it says she wrote an open letter and it was 1983 so i don't know where else it would appear you know 
But in December 1983, he pled guilty to kidnapping, sexual assault, and second-degree murder in the Richards case. They dismissed charges in the Fenton murder as part of a plea bargain, and he was sentenced to 30 years to life in Leavenworth, Kansas. So then in 2009, a new suspect was investigated in the Molly Bish murder. His name was Rodney Stanger. And the reason I bring him up is the second documentary, which I'll talk about in a minute. And he's a Florida resident. He was charged and convicted of murdering his girlfriend in Florida. He lived in Southbridge, Mass., which is a few miles from Warren, which is central Massachusetts, not near I-91. Warren is where Molly Bish disappeared in central Massachusetts. It's kind of the Worcester area, if you're familiar with Massachusetts. He had lived there for more than 20 years before moving to Florida, a year before Bish was murdered. His living girlfriend's sister, so his girlfriend was named Crystal Morrison. Her sister alerted Massachusetts authorities about him following her sister's death in Florida. He was known to have access to a white car, similar to one seen at the Molly Bish Hmm. disappearance, and he hunted in the woods where her body was found. He closely matches the composite provided by Maggie of the man seen in the white car, but he wasn't charged in her case. He was investigated, and he was also questioned in connection with the 1993 murder of Holly Perrine in Southbridge, and Holly was the same age as Molly Bish, hmm. but she was killed in 1993. And in fact, Bish had written a letter to Perrine's parents in 1993, Molly had, saying um, she hoped they found their daughter. And Oh, that's weird. Yeah. You know, just the kind of thing a little girl would do. I know, that's but, weird. Because they were the same age. And he wasn't charged in that case either. And, in fact, 2012 forensic evidence led them to name a guy, David Pouliot, who died in 2003, as a person of interest in the Praning case. So, in November 2011, a guy named Gerald Battistoni was named as a suspect in Bish's case by a private detective, Dave Malley, Dan Malley of Massachusetts. And Battistoni had served a prison sentence for repeatedly raping a teenage girl in the early 90s. He attempted suicide in prison after newspaper articles identified him as a potential suspect in the Bish mm. All this tells you is how fucking many scary people I are. I know! Battistoni, who had a criminal record dating back to 1980, had been in the area where Bish's body was found and resembles a composite sketch of the man Maggie saw in the parking lot on the day before Bish disappeared. And after he was named as a suspect, and he died in the hospital in November 2014. And the addition of Stanger, who has been talked about in both the Bish and the Connecticut River Valley ones, as well as Nicolau, brings up the other documentary I watched, Dark Minds. In its debut episode 2012, did the Connecticut Valley River serial killings. And I'll start by saying it doesn't even mention Nicolau at all in the documentary. Although it may, and this is one thing that bugged me about it. Its big gimmick is what bugged me the most. It's true crime writer William Phelps and profiler John Kelly. And their gimmick is that they have a serial killer, an imprisoned one, they call him 13 on the show, who will give them insight into these killings. And so they show these fraught phone calls with 13 where they're both scratching their heads or looking astounded as he says things that anyone who's ever watched, and I, I believe he's a serial killer. I don't know what his insight would be since he didn't kill the same way the Connecticut Valley one did. But they ask, like, what kind of car do you think he would drive? And he goes, a van. They're like, wow, why? So he wouldn't be seen, and that's what I drive. And it's like, that's John Kelly's a profiler. So he can't come up with this shit. I know. He described, like, well, he'd kill with a knife because, well, one of the things 
about these that I haven't brought up yet is most of the victims believed to be of the Connecticut Valley serial killer were not raped. There was no sexual assault. There was no sexual assault with Jessica Briggs either. She was just stabbed to death. Yes. And this guy describes how to people who do that and Nicolau, which is interesting how they don't mention him in this, loved his knives, loved his knives. And this serial killer mentions, number 13 mentions, that to people, some people, stabbing is the sexual excitement. I They're penetrating, yes. blah, blah, blah. And, and the funny thing is, obviously, John Kelly and phelps the true crime writer would know this because we kind of know it just yeah. from watching true crime and reading but they're both like oh wow yeah that's very oh, oh. like it's so insightful and it's like if this serial killer guy it's all a gimmick if he were really adding some insight but he doesn't say anything that any of us and probably most sounds, of the people listening yeah, sounds are irritating. familiar true crime it was irritating the other thing that irritated me is that they have a suspect, and it almost sounds like it could be Nicolau, except for there are details that are different. It's very convoluted because they go through a lot of gyrations to not say who the person is. But the guy came home covered in blood one day. He was a violent man. One time he had hung a, this kid's mom, this young man's mother, out the window with a by her hair and threatened ah! to kill her. He was a violent man, and he used to roam and ramble. And this young man believes that his father could have been the Connecticut Valley serial killer. He, had, he was violently dangerous. He had rage in him, specifically against women. They had a farm. He used to butcher pigs and chickens, not in the way you would if you had a farm, but in sadistic ways. Ew. Including hitting, hitting them between the eye, like the pigs between the eyes with a hatchet, and then watching the pigs run around. Ah! I know. He did drive a Jeep Wagoneer. And he had the capability of being a monster. Sounds like it. They never mentioned Michael Nicolau, although he did have a son, the same age. This guy died in 2008. Nicolau died in 2005. There are some other geographic differences. And the weird thing is, too, they never say, they never say Michael Nicolau was a suspect, but we don't believe he is for whatever reason. They just don't mention him. Which makes me wonder if this is who they are talking about, and they just got some of the details wrong. It's very confusing, yes. and I feel like a lot of it's done for... Why, and why not say the guy's name if he's dead? I, I'm not... They never really made that clear unless Unless I the son it. said, I'll only talk to you if you don't talk about... It was a very gimmicky show, and the thing that bothered me the most is, if you remember Jane Borowski, the woman who in 1988 survived an attack... Yes, the pregnant one, yeah. And who said Nicolau looked... On the other documentary, she said he looked similar to the guy who attacked her. On this, they show her a picture of this guy, and they say she's never seen a picture of him before, which leads you to believe it's not Nicolau. It gives her chills. It makes the hair stand up on her arms, according to her. She says, I've never had a reaction like this to anyone I've been shown a picture of in relation to this, basically. And then Phelps goes, Jane's reaction is chilling. Oh, my God. Oh, and the reason the son got involved, by the way, is when one of the reasons is when they first ran one of those composite sketches, his mother was sure it was his father, which I'm sure happens a lot. It does. It seems like any time that something happens, like a murder or something, a lot of people's spouses call. Right. But more recent stories, the Investigation Discovery documentary was made nine years before this one. Yeah. But more recent stories still say that Borowski believes Nicolau was the killer. 
And so, so who the hell so, knows? Right. And so I feel like this other documentary is really irresponsible. First of all, the gimmicky use of the serial killer. I'm sure that's how they got themselves a show. Oh, we're going to have a serial killer talk. But again, he's Kind of like Silence of the Lambs. Right, exactly. And I saw it compared to that many articles touting it before it went on the air. But... He's not saying anything that the profile No, doesn't. shit. He's not the guy who did it. I know. And they make it clear he's not. So, so but anyway, so I found that all stupid. very annoying. That, yes, I don't blame And you. I found the fact that they didn't mention Michael Nicolau at all, who's considered, despite the people on the blogosphere who say he couldn't be, he seems to be not only the most likely Connecticut River one, because of his proximity to there yeah. and his violent rage, the fact that he liked a gun and liked stabbing people. Yeah. The fact that he looked a lot like the guy who was seen at Molly Bish's. And he drove the same kind of car. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that, you know, he disappeared with Michelle Astley in December of 1988 from that area. Borowski was attacked in the fall of 88. Mm -hmm. And nothing, quote unquote, connected to him happened again. And they were later found in Georgia. But which is not to say they didn't go to Maine. Who knows? He could... Easily, or someone else could easily be Jessica Briggs. There's so killer. many people. There are so many people. He could have done some of them, and somebody else could have done others. I mean, that's the thing. Like That is the thing. Even similar ones. But the one thing about these that I keep coming back to is, and nobody really mentions it in any of the articles or anything I read, but the similar time of year yeah. for a lot of them. So to say, well, he was in Virginia at the time, well... You go visit your wife's family. I or know. You go up to, especially in the summer, wouldn't you rather be in New Hampshire than Virginia? I know. You don't know. You don't know. He could have driven up and driven back, you know? And yeah. it may be one person. It may be a bunch. There's a lot of people who have been murdered in I can't imagine. I mean, can't believe there's that many. 200 women. 200 women in the last 30 years that they don't know. And sad. And, and God well, only actually, knows. Actually, the last 30 years. I looked from 65 to 2005. I didn't count ones after that. There are more. I mean, there aren't as many. There seems to be a huge glut in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Hmm. And so... Well, those are unsolved, right? Yes. So maybe... Some more recent ones aren't cold cases. But I... Well, we got DNA testing. Duff gets solved easier maybe now. That's true. And I think it's much more likely Jessica Briggs was killed by, if not a serial killer. So that brings us to... The most recent Jessica Briggs Tony Sanborn story. Ooh, yes. Which which came out towards the end of June. Okay. So a couple weeks ago, and the lead of the story says in a preliminary report filed Friday in Portland Unified Criminal Court, Grego McCrary describes Briggs' killing as sexual in nature and is strikingly similar to the 1987 death of a Vermont woman believed to be the victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. Mm-hmm. That would be Barbara Agnew. Mm-hmm. That serial killer is believed responsible for seven deaths between 1978 and 87. And McCreary is a criminal profiler, and he's the second one to testify. There's going to be a hearing in July. This was the preliminary hearing. The hearing in July is to exonerate Sanborn, who's been out on bail since April, hmm. in the killing of Briggs. And to remind people, Sanborn was 16 when Briggs was killed, and he's maintained his innocence. It says in the Press-Herald story by Matt Byrne, the court filing impossible links to other unsolved murders... Make it clear that Sanborn's defense intends to argue that the 28-year-old physical evidence points to someone else's Briggs killer. McCrary worked for 25 years at the FBI, including the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, until his retirement in 1995. 
He now provides expert testimony across the country and the world and teaches a graduate-level course in forensic and legal psychology. Oh, I want to take and that. I've got a degree in psychology. I wonder if I can get into his class. I know. I don't have one, but I could get into it. You have a degree. Yeah, so I, have I don't have one, but I could get into it. I have a bachelor's degree in English. But, <laughs> and McCreary made his determination reviewing autopsy records, crime scene photos, and trial testimony, and he concluded that the injury Briggs sustained, quote, reflect an unusually severe underlying psychopathology, typically evidenced by serially violent offenders. Therefore, hmm. this is likelihood that Ms. Briggs was the victim of a serial killer. Briggs' throat had been slashed, severing the carotid artery and puncturing her jugular vein, ah, just like Brooke yeah. And she had been stabbed multiple times and nearly disemboweled after her death. And that's one point I always felt. If a 16-year-old kid is pissed at his girlfriend and he does stab her on the main state pier, which is a public place, oh, yeah. even though it's at midnight on a rainy night, you're not going to go disemboweling her. You're going to take off and, holy shit, take off. Well, you wouldn't do it there anyways. I know. Unless that's where they were having a fight and it was a spontaneous thing. Yeah. And it says here he is the first to offer a tentative link to other identifiable killings. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about Barbara Agnew, who we discussed. Yeah. Who, quote-unquote, went missing. <laughs> and if you want to know why I put quote-unquote around that, you can listen to my Her cranky, cranky editor, editor podcast. Because it fucking drives me crazy. But um, it's a podcast, a different podcast, so... She had been stabbed to death, and as if you remember, she had been found three months after she disappeared from that rest area. And McCreary su said she sustained a strikingly similar pattern of injuries. Huh. And that, while it would be premature to link this case without further in-depth analysis, these are the types of crimes that, in the interest of justice, should be cross-referenced and analyzed to determine yes. whether or not they could be linked. Exactly. And you know, we've talked about Joseph Wambaugh before, and one of his things, and I'm reminding because I'm reading Fire Lover, his book about a serial arsonist, he mentions how difficult it is to solve crimes because competing agencies, or different agencies, not even competing, don't want to release him. It's not they're that very they competitive. Right, they're very competitive and which don't want stupid. to. Which is stupid. So they're... Which is not in the interest of justice. Right. And sometimes they are. And in all the law enforcement people we know are awesome and do a great job. Yes, they are. But sometimes they just don't want to pursue something that they think is going to is gonna be banging their head against the wall when they have an easier option right here in their hand. Yeah. Well, they convince them. I think they convince themselves. Right. That's they do. Well, dangerous. they would have to to put innocent people in jail, yeah. wouldn't they? Yes. They should. But anyway, it says, McCreary's report mirrors that of another criminal profile filer, John Philpin. Yeah, that's when we talked and about. And he's the one I talked about earlier. episode 22. And I also talked about him earlier in this episode. Yes. He's not to be confused with John Kelly, the friend of the serial killer in the in no. the true crime episode with this serial killer okay. that I just mentioned, where they talk to the serial killer. And yes. He's not that John. He was the John we talked about earlier this episode that first linked, Yes, first agreed that there was a serial killer on the loose. And he also, in a summary filed in court in June in Portland, that said that Briggs was likely a victim of a serial offender who sought to, quote, own terrorize, humiliate, and ultimately kill. <laughs> he offered a tentative link to another main killing and suggested that authorities examine it more closely to look for similarities. That would be the murder of Angela Thomas in 1990 in Brunswick, which remains unsolved. Angela Thomas was 18, and she was found in the Androscoggin River near the Frank J. Wood Bridge in Brunswick on September 27, 1990. 
So another water, although there's a lot of water around. Yeah. So we're not going to fall into that trap. She was found by a Central Maine Power employee near the CMP Dam. She was from Auburn. She was last seen with two other individuals in an apartment on Knox Street in Brunswick five days earlier on September 22nd. It doesn't say how she was killed, but he's saying it was similar. So we'll go along with that. And one of the bothersome things is it. I don't feel like the police, when Jessica Briggs was killed, looked at other murders. You know, I don't think they looked at other uh, other murders. I think they started by looking at, which I know that they should do, looking at, at the victim and who she hung around with. Obviously, that's usually what the case was, like we were just talking about earlier, that in Maine, usually that's, it's usually not a stranger. And it seems like the ones... But you were, don't just grab somebody and... It seems like just, the ones in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont who were killed by strangers remain unsolved. Yeah. Unless there's compelling DNA evidence that links them to someone else. Well, it's probably usually pretty easy to... Not easy, but, you know, it's probably... Most people, like when it's a domestic violence situation or a boyfriend or someone that knows you killing you, a lot of times it's a, it's a crime of passion and they're not thinking about how they're going to cover it up. So if they do, they don't have a plan most of the right. time or a well-thought-out plan, but serial killers so, do. Serial killers do, and, they're, and they become very efficient. Yeah. And they don't make uh, the mistakes that other people make, and they don't leave a lot of evidence lying they, around. They get a lot of and practice. If you're out there on the pier, you dump her in the water. You don't go haul her body into the car or something like that. Sanborn and Briggs dated on and off. They're both teenage kids who ran with the same crowd. And prosecutors at the time of his arrest said he killed her. First of all, because she didn't want to go to Virginia Beach with him where he was running off. Because he didn't want to testify in another murder trial. And also because she refused to give him tip money, she'd earned busing tables at DeMillo's restaurant nearby. As I've said before, Pam Ames, who was the prosecutor at the time said in a recent TV interview a couple months ago when he first got out of jail that Jessica Briggs was a prostitute and Tony Sanborn was her pimp and he was mad because she wasn't giving him money, including her tip money, which that's not as far as I know how prostitutes That was, came out of the blue, too. That was something that we hadn't read in any and court documents. And I was going to say, just in case it comes up again, because we're going to hear from her again. Yeah, she's being subpoenaed. Yes, that doesn't appear in anything I've read about the case from then or from now. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it was testified to in court. It doesn't appear in any of the witness interviews that we have in the case file that's on our link to on our website. And his whole trial rested on a girl who was 13 at the time of the murder who claimed, who claimed she saw and heard a lot more than she was able to see and hear because it turned out she was legally blind and deaf and had other issues. And the prosecution knew it at the time of his trial and in a nutshell, for those of you who haven't yet listened to episode 22, kept it from the defense. Yes, it's a good story. And it's a good story that keeps on giving. Yes. And I was happy to bring this. And I keep saying that we're going to do another one, and we will. We but will. we want to wait to see when how it's resolved. When he has this yeah. month or something, we so will. So sometime later and, in the summer we'll And we'll bring something. some more background stuff yeah. to it. Yes, too. yes. So that's kind of one of the tangents that comes off of this. And I think whether it's related or not, it kind of tells you... There's a lot of it. Well, you know, when there's... The thing is, I'm sure if they were to... And that they do. If you took a map of the United States and put pins where all the 
victims were found. They're going to be around highways and places where you can dump and run. Yeah. Or places that are remote, I guess. Like in New England, there are a lot of small towns, but there are a lot of... It's like right. they're on big deserts and, and stuff. And people notice stuff. Yeah, people they, are nosy. But one thing that on that true crime show that I was critical of, one thing the profiler mentions, rather than the serial killer himself, the profile <laughs> me- mentions that the most dangerous time for a serial killer is when he has a body and he wants to be safe and comfortable so he gets rid of the body. Yes. And serial killers, I think, put a lot more thought into the efficiency of that than somebody who kills somebody. I believe if Tony Sanborn had really killed her, her stab body would have been left there. And he certainly wouldn't have taken the time to disembowel her. I don't know. It seems like if you're if you're dating somebody, if they were together, if she was with him and they were going somewhere to talk or something, I don't think that's where they'd go. They'd probably go Especially on a rainy one night. One of the places they hung out. Yeah, on a rainy night. Yeah. They go somewhere sheltered. If they got in a fight, I don't know. It just doesn't seem plausible. Yeah. You know, it's easy for us to... Just you can We can speculate the world away, yeah. but you have to go by the evidence. But I really don't think that he's guilty of it. No, I don't either. And even if he is, he did not get a fair trial. He certainly didn't. So, anyway, so anyway. So, uh, so that was good. Thank and you. I will be doing something it. interesting next week. You will be. Okay, so are we going to do our recommendations? Yeah, let's do them. <laughs> We're talking about the podcast everybody's talking about, and that's Ear Hustle. Yes. comes out of San Quentin. Yes, San prison, Quentin, which is minimum security prison. And it's really interesting because the, the hosts are convict, Erlan, and a... visual artist woman who works Nigel. with a comp. Her name's Nigel something. Yeah. Sorry. And Kim. I just want to address, before we even get into anything, one issue in a couple different places, and that this is another case of white people presenting something... And listening to it, I have to say that she isn't this all-knowing white she's person. She's not even there much. I No, you know what I feel like is that she's us. Asking questions like, oh, would you really? You know, although she doesn't say it like that. That's how I would say it. So I don't think that there's... That he, it's not like she's telling the No, the story. prisoners seem to tell the story. And the first one was about prison life. And the other thing is, there's a there's their information officer, whoever it has to approve, has the to approve the episodes, and he does it at the end. Yeah. The thing that I find interesting about it is that there's a couple things I want to say before I talk about it. Is I think as listeners, those of us who have never been in jail or even near in a prison, are very interested in what life is like. The everyday life, not what the crimes are or people getting raped or stuff, but just like day-to-day life. And I remember the prison in Maine, the big prison was in Thomaston, Maine. I think it had started in like 1820s, the prison, the, it was the original the prison. was Redemption was based on. Yes, and, and the original prison, it was in the late 90s, 1999 maybe, they closed that prison down. They were building a new prison in Warren, which is where they had had the supermax. And when you used to drive through Thomaston, that was an imposing building there. That Thomaston's a beautiful town, and but this prison was was granite, there. Main granite. And people called it. They called the prison Thomaston. I mean, it was kind of like Walpole Prison too. You know, right, in Massachusetts, which um, is now Cedar Junction because of the town of Walpole doesn't want the prison to be called. Yeah, whatever. 
whatever, but we still do. So when that prison closed, they weren't going to do this, but apparently a lot of people, they wanted to see the inside of the prison. No one apparently had thought anyone would be interested in it. I went with my ex-husband. We went to one of the last days. I think there was a week that you could go there and tour it. There was a line. You wouldn't believe how long the line was. But, you know, people were extremely interested in seeing the inside of the prison. And they even had the older cells, which were basically from the original prison were kind of a hole in the ground it was kind of like a square hole it was a cell but it was you would go they would throw you into it and then put a grate over it which is kind of but they also had a baseball field there teams used to come and play them like you know barnstorming teams used to come play the prisoners and that was interesting to me but I think that what people were interested in and when we went to San Francisco we toured yes, Alcatraz, Alcatraz and that, that was, was cool. a popular tour too yeah. I think people are really interested in prison life yeah. and the first episode of Air Hustle is a guy talking about cellies cellies yeah the roommates and I like those two brothers funny. they I were two brothers funny. yeah but it's the ones who couldn't get along yes and it's one thing I guess and this is going to sound really stupid and naive probably but I'll say it anyway okay. that they're human beings and they have a lot of the same concerns that people outside of prison do especially when you're thrown into a cell with another person yeah. and you have to live with them it really I feel like it really humanizes prisoners yeah. and one thing especially because we're we're white middle class people, yeah. and we, and that's what our knowledge is, especially since we live in the whitest state in, in the nation. Union. And one thing that's bugged me for probably a good twenty years or more is how kids in our of our ethnic group, our race and class, like to kind of co-opt gang stuff and yeah. think they're cool. And not, and I'm not talking about listening to the music. I'm talking about the way they communicate and the and things, and they think it's cool, and they think it's makes them tough and i always thought it was amusing when white middle class kids i think they listen to rap more than acted. anyone else i think maybe they should all have to listen to this and see these aren't these aren't caricatures you know that they're trying to pose as these are real people yeah and, and they, they have... talk about some of the things on the second episode i really enjoyed listening to the guy talk about what caused him to kill another gang, a member from another gang, yeah. who, in retaliation, his mother and brother were killed. Yes. And his reaction to that, and and it's not what you would think. No, it's, it's not. not cliche, and it's, it's not, not like they're telling more war stories and, no. and bragging. Um, and it's not also not, I didn't do it, you know, no. or, or making themselves a victim. That guy was not making himself a victim. No. He does fact, feel he bad. he was very insightful about what it did to him and what it did to other people. And I'm glad the first show was not about that because the first show was very about mundane, you know, roommates and what it's like to live with another person, which is a big... That may sound like a little boring, but I couldn't turn it it off. I was driving somewhere and I had to sit in the parking lot to listen to the Yeah, and it's only 20 minutes Yeah, it's less than half an hour. And the first guy they talked to was a Native American guy. And I love (laughs) his story because he's being checked in and there's a guy there that's like, gives him the creeps and is the meanest person he's ever met and that's who ends up being his cellmate because they do... you know, if you've watched they, Orange is the New Black, how they segregate. Yes, they they set them up by ethnic group, and I think that's just so there will be less trouble. I mean, it sounds it sounds like oh, we should we should blend everybody, no, but, not but in you prison. know what? It's prison. 
Everything is amplified, I think, in prison. Yes. Whatever I mean, I'm, and it's not right or Tensions wrong. It's just right for practical reasons. I think they've right. learned. You would think everybody, the prisoners and the guards and everybody, would want to avoid conflict and problems wherever possible, and by segregating people most of the time although, by ethnic group. Although it didn't really work out hand, for these for the two Indians, the guy said, "What? He didn't sleep for six Nathan. months. He was afraid the guy was going to kill but, him." And, but sleep. then it worked out because once. That guy was either transferred to another prison or whatever. And he's now he has a cell to himself. Yeah. So, but the not to spoil it for you, the other side to that segregation is that it allows them to gang up, you know, with the white supremacists. It kind of strengthens everybody's. But maybe that's the alternative to if you try to make it this happy melting pot <laughs> where rainbow everybody got along, you know, yeah. like Billy Jack. <laughs> I was thinking of this is Saturday Night Live with Paul Simon, Billy Jack. They had that ice satire. cream. Cake. Yeah, if if everybody could only get along, like the flavors of the ice cream cone. And those of you, I think you have to be our age to, to know what age. Billy Jack was. Oh, it Billy played for Jack. 51 weeks oh, at my Cinema God. South. That was Ohio. such a popular movie. So anyways... <laughs> off track but yes i would i would highly recommend ear hustle i, I think too. i think it's, everybody it's and it's very well done and they do it all within they the do prison it all walls. in the prison and they do their own music and they mm-hmm. do their own editing it's much it's much it's much better than ours, than ours. <laughs> not that, yeah. that we have you know not we don't make any anything. pretense to nah. be anything no. and but we, we don't have any musical talent but as I said, we live in the whitest state in the Union, and and it's very easy, especially in Maine, to caricature people. Yeah. Our governor certainly did it as far as our drug problem and things, and I won't go into the details of that. Anybody can just Google Governor LePage and, no, and don't even, D-Money yeah. or something. I mean, we're, we're not stupid people, and we're not... You're looking at me like maybe I am. No. Well, it just it just allows you to like you're having a conversation with somebody that listens to them talk as if they are another person, not somebody you're looking at like oh this criminal. Yes. There was something else I wanted to talk about, but I can't think. I started watching uh, Master of None again, and I like it so far. Aziz Ansari's mm-hmm. show on yeah. Netflix. I haven't been watching much of anything because I've except the Brady to... Bunch. Yes. Because, and that leads us to... I recommend GroovyTube, the new, our new great podcast, new podcast. GroovyTube. We're looking at, in season one, Crimes of the Brady Bunch. And hopefully you can find it by searching for GroovyTube on your podcast. Because I made a mistake when I filed the information with iTunes. And it has the name of our introductory trailer <sighs> instead. But I'm trying to fix it. If you go professionals, Don't try this at home or you'll end up like us. ha. <laughs> Uh, but you can find it. And we also, you can also find it because we tweet at GroovyTube Podcast. And we have, and we have a Facebook page. We do. GroovyTube Podcast. Yes, we do. We have links to our first episode and our trailer on there. And our second and episode. On, we have links on crime and stuff. And we're going through the series and we're talking about it. We talk about six episodes of show. And we're talking about it through the lens of our adult <laughs> And 21st century knowledge. Yes. Both affection and sarcasm. Yeah, affection and sarcasm. And you may, we make you fun of it a lot, we but we, can, we still like it. And there's also my other podcast, 
notes from a cranky editor. Yes. And it's very short, except for my holiday. Yeah, her holiday one is kind of long. Well, it's 27 minutes. It's not that. But I know. my other ones are like three or four Yes, minutes. the other ones are short. So we're rocking and rolling, and you can find us on Twitter at tweet Crime us. and Stuff. You can tweet at us. You can find us online at crimeandstuffonline.com. And, and you can email us at... And find us on Facebook. And what's the email? Crime and, Crime and Stuff, stuff online, online at gmail.com. And we're always looking for not only suggestions, but comments. And, and please rate and review on rate iTunes. And, review. and you can also donate and help us bankroll this expensive... <laughs> really well, if you want to help us out on pay, um, Patreon or PayPal... Yep. One-time donation. There are links on our... Had some, some nice ones. We do. And we have merch that you get if you donate. We have nice tote bags with our logo designed. And the logo is designed by Rebecca. And by the way, she also just has designed our Groovy Tube logo and my Which cranky, is pretty cool. Yeah. And our Cranky Editor logo. So if you want to just check those out... We'll get some it. merch for the Groovy Tube. We will. We have I to get, get it done. I want to get a car magnet. Yeah, you know, we're going to have magnets. And that logo is going to look awesome on magnets. Probably also have tote bags on I would think. Yes. That logo would look awesome. And mom has, uses our tote bag all the time. Yeah. And I do Our like crime and stuff. Yes. Right now. No, I don't. But I would if I had brought all my stuff with me. Yeah. So that was, this has been exciting. And, and that's this week. And we'll be back next week with an exciting episode. From yes. Who, who next week will be, in fact, when you're listening to this, will be a year older. Yes. I'll tomorrow. be 52. Ugh. 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 Better than the alternative. Yeah. Say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Something is wrong with my back. Twice there was a okay. spasm in my back. I, I really feel for you. Let's get this show on the road. Uh, uh.